Today on the Craft Room Podcast, let's talk about how to level up your paper crafting. This is episode 10. Welcome to the Craft Room Podcast. I'm your host, Dawn Lewis, professional crafter, craft teacher, and all-round craft enthusiast. This podcast will help you get great value from your craft supplies and perhaps help you discover new techniques, ideas, and products to take your crafting to the next level. There is so much craft to talk about, so let's dive right in. Hey, welcome to the Craft Room Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, a special welcome to you. So today I have been thinking about one of the most commonly asked questions that I see in Facebook card making groups. It goes a little something like this. I'm new to card making. What should I buy? And I've got to say, the answers always intrigue me because everyone is so passionate about what they think is the best tool or the most useful thing to have. And I really love seeing everyone being so helpful to those who are new to the craft. However, while the answers come from a place of pure enthusiasm and helpfulness, they're not always going to be what the person who has asked the question actually needs. I think that when we've been card making or scrapbooking for a really long time, paper crafting, etc., we forget how we started. And so the recommendations are often items that aren't quite appropriate for a beginner. Also, we are all really different. We have different budgets, different size workspaces, different storage capacity, different tastes, different needs. And one person's essentials may be another person's waste of money. In one card making group I belong to, there's a running thread in an album that's an excellent resource for members. And when I considered the question, really thought about what I would recommend, I realized that I started with the basics. Everybody starts with the basics. And then over the years, I've leveled up as I've discovered new products and new techniques. My needs changed, my space changed, my tastes changed, the amount of time I could dedicate to my craft changed. And eventually I figured out what I liked, what I didn't like, what I would use and what I wouldn't use. So my contribution to that thread was pretty comprehensive, but it was in dot point. So I thought, why not share it here today on the podcast in a lot more detail because I thought it might come in handy for anyone who's just starting out in card making, scrapbooking, junk journals, whatever your paper crafting is. And for those of you who aren't paper crafters, feel free to stick around because I will be discussing some of the reasons when and how and why we level up, which you might find interesting or perhaps even appropriate to your craft. So here it is. Here's my story. Here's the way I leveled up because I started where everybody starts, level one absolute beginner. Back in episode two, I talked about the top six things you need to begin card making. And in episode three, I talked about the top five things you need to begin stamping. I'll link to those episodes in the show notes if you haven't heard those yet. And for the quilters, Marnie Franks from Frankenstein's Fabric joined me in episode five to discuss her top 10 must have items to begin making a quilt top. So I'll link to that episode as well. So when you're starting out, there's really not very much that you actually need to be a card maker or a scrapbooker or do art journaling or, or quilting or embroidery or whatever it is that you're into. I do not know anybody who has started with all the tools because the cost is just prohibitive. And seriously, who has space for all that stuff when you don't even know what you're doing and if you're going to enjoy it that much yet? 
So here's me. Back when I started about 30 years ago at level one as a card maker, I sourced most of my supplies at the big stitches and craft shows that we have here in Australia, which I would attend religiously twice a year after saving a little craft budget for six months. I would go to the show, check out what was new, look at everything, then figure out where I was going to spend my money, go back and shop. I was onto stamps pretty much straight away and I was really careful about what I got because in my card making box, yes, everything fit in one box. I still can't comprehend how I ever had so few supplies, but I I had to make sure that everything I had, I could get maximum use out of it. So in my little card making box, I had cardstock, I had black, white and colour. I had some specialty papers. That was a really big deal 30 years ago. I had my cutting tools. I had a craft knife, ruler and a self-healing mat. These days, I probably would have started with an inexpensive trimmer. I had some stamps. I had some ink pads. I had black and I had colored. I had adhesive, scissors and punches. So we are talking very late 80s, scrolling into the early 90s. And there just wasn't anywhere near the range available then as there is now. There weren't clear stamps. So I didn't have a need for an acrylic block. And when I think about it, it's actually quite close to the list that I recommend now. So I wasn't far off my ideal setup. I've got to say now I rarely use punches, but back then I used them all the time. I mean, it was the trend. They were everywhere. They were easy to get and nobody had die cutting machines. I don't even think they were on the scene at all. I was able to make quick cards, cute cards, pretty cards, pretty quickly and pretty easily and at an affordable price. What I did was I chose items that I felt I'd get lots of use out and I was really happy creating cards in my spare time until the inevitable happened. I started getting bored with my supplies. I got really sick of using the same punches and stamps over and over. And then new products started being shown at the craft shows. And that's when I got the itch. And I took the leap into level two, heat embossing. I already had stamps and ink pads, so heat embossing was a very natural next step for me. So do you remember the first time you ever saw heat embossing in action? I do. Oh my goodness. It was just like magic. My brain was full of ideas. I was absolutely entranced by the possibilities that this magical powder presented to me. I started with a basic kit. I think it had it did it had a perfect medium clear embossing ink ink pad and a few embossing powders. I'm pretty sure I started with clear, gold, silver and copper. I actually still have those embossing powders and I still use them today. Amazing. The problem I faced was that heat guns were really expensive and they were hard to find. They just weren't readily available. I was absolutely determined to find a solution that wasn't going to take half my week's pay. And I will also let you know that even though you might think a hairdryer would be a good solution, it is not. It's not hot enough and it just blows the powder everywhere. So what I ended up using was my toaster. Oh yes, I did heat embossing with a toaster and I made do with that toaster for over a decade. If you are on a tight budget and a heat gun isn't in your future, I recommend giving toaster heat embossing method a try. I did learn some important tips that you need to know before you start and I will share them here and I'm going to endeavor to make a video showing how this works really soon. When I do I'll come back to the show notes and I'll pop a link in but if you want to know when to see that you can check out my YouTube channel which is Dawn Lewis Paints. Yes I'm full of regret for not changing the name of my channel Um, but if you check out my YouTube channel 
in upcoming weeks. Hopefully you will find it there and you can subscribe and that way you'll know. Actually, if you do the bell thingy, I think you get notifications. So that's pretty cool. So things I learned about toaster embossing. I know this is a little bit of a segue, but you know, I know people who are just starting out and this might be intriguing. Number one, you need to empty all the crumbs out of your toaster because you do not want to set off the smoke alarm and make your house smell like burnt toast. Number two, before you even start, take note of where the toast level setting is. Mark it with some tape or take a photo. It took a very long time for whoever set that toaster level to decide on the perfect level of toastiness. And if you don't put it back, someone is going to be very cross. Number three, you are going to need long tweezers or some secure tongs to hold your piece of cardstock. It is going to get really hot really fast and you don't want your fingers that close to that much heat. It will be a bonus if the tongs or tweezers have some silicon because the metal is going to get very, very hot and you'll still burn your fingers. I know this, all of this by doing it the hard way. So the method here is you just stamp your image with your clear embossing ink, sprinkle over the powder, tap off the excess onto some paper and brush off any loose powder that's sticking where it shouldn't be. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Put your stamped and powdered piece of cardstock off to the side and pour that excess powder back into the jar right now and put the lid on. We do not want to accidentally knock the whole thing over when the toaster pops up and gives us a fright. Learned that the hard way as well. So now that you're prepped, you've got your piece prepped, your toaster is prepped, all your powder is secure in its jar. You turn the toaster heat setting up to full. You press the lever down. Obviously, you're not putting bread in your toaster, although two birds, one stone, I guess. But you're going to hold the cardstock over the toaster at least five centimetres above. A little more is preferable with the stamped and sided pound up. You don't want it facing down. So you've got to constantly move it around so you don't set your cardstock on fire or scorch it. I've scorched many a piece of cardstock and I only set one on fire. So I think that's pretty good. It takes a little while, but it, it heats in from the back. You see the heat embossing powder start to melt. And when you're completely finished, put the toaster setting back the way it was, lest you incur the wrath of someone who's unhappy with burnt toast. So I mentioned before about embossing powder being where it shouldn't be and this is where I'm going to add two items to this level list. An anti-static powder tool is an excellent thing to have. It stops powder sticking where it shouldn't be. You can buy one or you can make your own. The last item would be a fine paintbrush. I have one that I keep in my paper crafting tool caddy which I only use for brushing away embossing powder and it works a treat. Now of course the next question is what colour embossing powders should I buy? Well, that very much depends on what you like. If you don't like silver, don't buy silver. And if you really don't like gold, then don't buy gold. Buy colours that you like. However, here is a handy tip that I figured out early on. I was a bit proud of myself for figuring this out back in the day. If you already have a bunch of coloured ink pads, bonus points if they are pigment ink pads, because that's a slow drying ink, perfect for heat embossing, then you don't need to buy a bunch of coloured embossing powder. So one of my favourite things to do in those early days, I'd stamp with my coloured pigment ink and then I'd put the clear embossing powder over it and heat set that. So I had colour, I had dimension, I had gloss, but I didn't have to spend my limited craft funds on tonnes of bottles of all these different coloured embossing powders. Now today, mostly I use silver, gold, copper, yes, my 30-year-old copper, and clear and the one that I like 
I don't use it as much as I should. I really should use it more often. It's clear and it's got sparkles in it like glitter. It's so cute. So, you know, I figured out what I use and I figured out what I like. I think maybe I'd like to add a rose gold or glow in the dark embossing powder. But to start with, get the colors that you like and a clear embossing powder is going to go a long way. Oh, the other one I use a lot is white. I do use white because I like to use it for emboss resist, but you can use clear for emboss resist as well. So it's all good. So now, as you might have guessed, I was well and truly hooked and I had started doing scrapbooking. This led to level three, embellishments. Oh, my goodness. This is where it's very tempting and incredibly possible to go absolutely crazy. Now, these days, I don't use embellishments very much on my cards, maybe some Nuvo drops or some sequins here and there. I don't use them much, but I did used to use them a lot when I was scrapbooking. So I have a very generous collection in my stash. I started really small. I remember distinctly the first embellishments I used were some brass split pins that my dad had brought home from work for me. So I had to think about what's in my stash. And here are some embellishments that may tempt you. Split pins, also known as brad. You can get them metallic. You can get colors. You can get shapes. They're very cool. Uh, eyelets. I have a lot of eyelets. Buttons, twine, ribbon, paper doilies, paper and silk flowers, Fancy mesh ribbons, adhesive gems, adhesive pearls, sequins, beads, shaped paper clips. That was a big thing. Mini tags, coloured hot glue sticks. That was very fun. I used to make faux wax seals out of coloured hot glue sticks. I don't know if you can get them anymore, but I still have quite a lot of them. Now, I'm sure there's more that I haven't put on that list, but these are just some of the very, very tempting and wonderful embellishments that you can find. And it's when you're on this level that you are 100% sure that this is a craft you want to do for a long time. You're all in. You're also now likely in a phase where you're crafting late at night. And if you're making a big project, you want to be able to finish it without doing any online shopping and the waiting that goes along with the online shopping. Or stall just because your craft store is closed and you're working away on something and you don't have what you need. So this is the phase where you really start your stash building so that you can craft uninterrupted late at night or on a weekend when stores aren't closed and have what you need on hand. And for me, this was the level when I was also on a really tight budget. And I discovered that I could get some basics at the dollar shops. This is when dollar shops were just really starting to become popular and popping up everywhere. Some things I bought were really great prices and really great value for those prices. And this was the level where I learned the hard way, the difference between cheap and cheerful and cheap and nasty. Now, there's nothing wrong with grabbing a bargain, but if it's something that you never use, it's not a bargain. It's a waste of money. So be discerning when you're purchasing dollar store items. My my best guide, I guess the best way to describe it is the way you react. So if you're in a dollar shop and you pick something up or you look at something and you, your reaction is, how is this a whole $2? Ew, that is cheap and nasty. But when your reaction is more like, how is this only $2? This is so good. Maybe it's a mistake and they got a box of stuff from Lincraft by accident. That is cheap and cheerful. So uh, you can find both. You, even to this day, you find both things and not only in dollar stores, pretty much anywhere you're shopping. So, but it is 
possible to find some cheap and cheerful fantastic things. I actually have a video where I showcase 10 cards I created from dollar store products. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. That's um, got some some cute things in there and it made some really quick cards. Anyway, my last pro tip here for this level of embellishments would be don't go overboard buying embellishments. Trends change, your tastes change. There will always be something new so if you buy a bag of 52 printed die cuts and you only use one or two the rest are just going to sit in your stash that is a waste of space and it's a waste of money so if you really have to have that 52 die cut pack make a plan plan to use all of it or at least most of it straight away and finish that project before you go buy more I know I know it's we, we like to buy the things, but honestly, if you've got limited space and limited funds, you really want to make the most of what you're buying before you go buy more. Trust me, as someone who just de-stashed their craft supplies, this is great advice. All right. It also does lead us very nicely onto level four, because if you like to buy pre-printed die cuts, <clears throat> if you like to buy pre-printed die cuts, then level four die cutting and raised embossing <laughs> yep I got there I got there and it wasn't very long after I had been paper crafting for a very long time before I was finally convinced that it would be a good idea and great value to buy my own die cutting machine I'd moved into scrapbooking and I think I, I did that about 16 years ago and specialty scrapbooking stores they were opening up everywhere scrapbooking was queen of crafts I had started teaching at my local scrapbooking store and I met one of my best friends who was also working there. And through her, oh, I discovered all these amazing things. So the first thing, the first step in, in working me towards my own home die cutting machine was she introduced me to the world of swapping. Oh my goodness, paper crafting swaps. I became a hardcore serial swapper and it gave me lots of great excuses to pop into the shop and make oh so many wonderful purchases. Around the same time, another of my wonderful friends had invited me to go to a weekend scrapbooking crop. And it was so much fun and we would do that a couple of times a year. And around this time, Sizzix came out with a home die cutting machine. There was a really big commercial one at the store where I worked. You could pay a little fee, not very much, a couple of bucks, and spend time on it, use their dies, and I, it was great. And I thought to myself, why would I need my own die-cutting machine at home when I can just come, you know, they were very expensive, when I could just come into the shop and use their dies for next to nothing. But it was at one of those weekend crops, and both of my great friends were there, and another lady had a Sizzix machine with her. And she let me have a go. And that was when I realized I actually could get a lot of use out of one of these. It still took over a year for me to take the plunge and invest in such an extravagant purchase because my budget was still tight. My kids were very young. But when I did take the plunge and do that, I'm really glad that I did. I actually still have that machine. I don't use it so much now, but I still have it. I was at this stage where I preferred to make my own embellishments from scratch and I was starting to see that if I invested in tools that have multiple uses, I would get better value than purchasing some ready-made stuff that was just single-use. I'm paying $5 for a pack of three embellishments. Bam, you put them down on the page, they're gone. $20 for a tool that would help me make unlimited numbers of those. Well, that was a better investment. So I was starting to view things a little bit differently, realizing that investing in tools that 
that would stretch my dollar further was a good move. And I have to say, it was a pretty exciting day when I got that Sizzix machine. It's the old school pull down handle one. It took thick dies and sizzlets. That's the thinner dies that preceded the wafer thin ones that are just everywhere today. The bonus was that I could use embossing folders in the machine. So it pulled double duty and it really helped me get my money's worth. However, there's something that you kind of don't think about when you buy your first die cutting machine and that is you have to feed it. What I mean by that is you get your machine and you get a couple of dies and then you get bored. You get bored using the same alphabet dies over and over. You want variety. So you're constantly adding new dies to your collection. You're constantly feeding your machine. Around this time, I was thinking, how am I going to fund this new obsession? And I realized I could start using my dies and my supplies, of which I had many because I had lots of embellishments and stuff. I figured out I could create handmade embellishments and sell them on eBay. This is still in the fairly early days of eBay. It was great because I was really using my tools. I was making things which was fun, but I didn't necessarily have to find somewhere to put it. I could sell it to other people boost my PayPal account and use my earnings to fund my next round of die purchases. So I didn't have to take from the family budget to fund all these dies I wanted to buy. I could actually make things with the supplies I already had. It was fantastic. Now, I loved that little Sizzix machine. And like I said, I still have it. I did upgrade to a Sizzix Big Shop maybe five, six years ago, just because all my new dies were the new wafer thin metal dies that we're so used to seeing now. And my old Sizzix just wasn't up to the job. Even with the converters, it was just too hard to make it work. So if you are entering level four now, what would I recommend in the die cutting arena? Well, that depends very much on you. I have a few tips and ideas and questions you can ask yourself when you are trying to make that decision. So the first one is take your budget into consideration. There are tons of choices to fit most budgets. So really think about how much you do want to spend on this. The next thing I would say is how much space do you have for a die cutting machine? They can take up a lot of space. So if your workspace is small, maybe look for one that folds up. I think there's a Spellbinders one that folds up. Big Shot just introduced a fold up one. So definitely take the space into consideration. The next thing you should ask yourself is what exactly do you want to die cut? Do you want to die cut out your stamps? Are you going to get coordinating dies that go with your stamp sets? Because that can be really expensive. Do you want to just die cut shapes? Do you want to die cut interactive dies? So think about what you want to die cut because some die cutting machines are small and they will only take very little dies. So if you want to cut something that is kind of a full size A2 cover die, you need a die cutting machine that's going to take that die. And when it comes to those coordinating dies, if you hate the fussy cutting, then perhaps coordinating dies are the thing for you. Another recommendation is maybe just start with some basic yet very versatile dies. 
rectangles, circles, ovals? Do you like a plain cut edge? Do you like something with faux stitching or the little faux pierced holes? Like, What do you like the look of when you're looking at cards online? And have a look at shapes that you always use or that you always wish you could use. Go back over your Pinterest boards and see what do you consistently pin? If you're constantly pinning things with faux stitch rectangle dies, then maybe that's a really good start for you. Also think about sentiments. Do you prefer to stamp your sentiments or would you get some use from commonly used word dies like happy birthday, get well, congratulations, that kind of thing. So think about the dies you want to use when you're thinking about the machine you want to get. And then when you're thinking about embossing folders, maybe start with one that's simple like uh, there's a little Swiss dots, little tiny dots or something with fine stripes. See if you enjoy using embossing folders and go from there. Don't just go and buy tons of them and then get them home and go, I don't like using these. Get one and see how it goes. Now, whatever you choose, make sure it's something that you're going to use over and over again. There are lots of ways to use your dies. Naturally, you can cut them out. But if you add an embossing mat, you can make an impression with them. This opens up a whole new world of techniques absolutely amazing and it helps your dies pull double duty and you can get more than your money's worth. I'll link in the show notes to an embossing mat so you can see what I mean there. And so here I was die cutting and getting all these great dies and all too soon it was inevitable I hit level five. I must have more stamps. It all started with a stamping up demonstration at a friend's house. And as we all sat around after the demo was over, admiring our gorgeous work and these amazing products, there was a, a moment of silence. And I remember saying, one of us needs to sign up for this. <laughs> and one of us did. It wasn't me. Um, my friend Karen did. And she was my stamp dealer for many, many years. This was when I started collecting stamps with much more enthusiasm. I mean, I was supporting my friend in her new business, my kids were older. I had a little more time to craft. I had more money in my crafting budget. And the designs, they were getting better and better. And stamps were becoming more and more affordable. Acrylic stamps were starting to hit the shops. And while now I am not a fan of acrylic stamps because of the work you need to get them off their backing and to get a decent impression from them, Back then, it was new and they were affordable and I was a fan of the price point. I did give a lot of stamping advice back in episode three, but I feel that some of it bears repeating now. These days, when you add stamping to your repertoire in a very big way, there are a few things that you should keep in mind. Really think about the occasions that you make card fours and buy sets that you can use for those occasions. So if you send a lot of birthday cards, start with birthday themed stamp sets. If you send a lot of new baby cards, if that's the phase of life you're in, then look at some great baby sets. There's no point buying a golfing set if you don't actually send cards to anyone who plays golf, right? No matter how cute it is. When you look at a stamp set, here's my question. Can you immediately think of at least three different ways you can use it? If you can't think of three different ways you can use it, it's time to reconsider the purchase or think harder. That's my advice. Versatility is everything. Go for stamp sets that you can use for a variety of ages and occasions as well as stamp sets you can use with a variety of techniques and other products. So 
If you find yourself falling in love with Christmas stamps and buying them all only to realise that you don't actually make Christmas cards, you've got a couple of options. Stop buying Christmas stamps or start making and sending Christmas cards. If you know, it's the same as with the golf set, you know, I guess you've got to, if you're buying these things, you've got to find a use for them. So in order to save you some money and brain power, maybe think of those uses before you make the purchase. I would also say consider quality. If you are going to be stamping a lot, go for quality. Nowadays and for a very long time, I've been steering clear of acrylic and silicone because the quality just isn't there. And they are entering into the realm of cheap and nasty. So back in the day when I had acrylic stamps, trying to remove them from the backing acetate, I ripped, I don't know, I reckon about half of them. And uh, silicon stamps, now... Not all silicon stamps and knockoffs. The ones that you get for free on the cover of a magazine are either acrylic or silicon, and they've been licensed to the company, so they they're fine to use. I'm, I'm, I have no gripe with those, except that they deteriorate. Like they deteriorate so fast because they're super super cheap. That's how they can afford to do them as a freebie on a magazine. And after a while, they just don't stamp a good image because they've actually physically deteriorated. What a waste of money! So. Give me photopolymer or rubber stamps any day of the week because I'm in this for the long haul and I'm going to use those stamps. And by the time you're at this level, you're probably going to stamp long term as well. And let's make those stamps last. And it also means that by making sure they last, when you de-stash and sell them, refer back to my de-stashing episode, which I'll also link to in show notes, uh, you might actually get some decent money for them when you sell them. So quality all the way. And lastly, I say look at smaller sets. Little two inch by three inch stamp sets are a great price and you can get a lot of use out of them. One of my favorite kind of video to to do is to do a series where I'll show you a whole bunch of different ways you can use a single stamp set. I'll link to a few of those in the show notes as well. It was also at this level where I purchased my first stamp positioning tool. It was called the Stamp-A-Majig. I actually still use it for my rubber stamps because I can't see through them. I'm not sure how they fit. I use it. It's a two-piece set where you get a piece of plastic, which is square, and you get a corner. So it's kind of like a handle, but it's got a right-angled corner in it, and you can line everything up. I'm sure I've got – I'm sure I use it in some videos. I'll see if I can find one, and I'll link to it with a timestamp so you know where to look to see what I'm talking about if you're curious. But honestly, I still use it for the rubber stamps and it did the trick for me for over over a decade and it helped me improve my stamp placement and even double stamp if I needed to. It wasn't perfect every time but it, it really did do a good job. Here I was cruising merrily along at level five thinking this can't get any better but it was for work that I delightedly moved up to level six electronic die cutting machine. So about 10 years ago when I was working with Brandcorp, there was an Australian papercraft trade show called SIA. And on this particular occasion, I was invited to contribute to the Brandcorp display, run a workshop, demonstrate, and I made a lot of work to model for the actual display. It was heaps of fun and I got to spend two days sitting in a stand across from Heidi Swap. It was so cool. That was the day I was introduced to Copic markers for the first time. I will get into that in an up coming level but suffice it to say there wasn't a large time gap between this level and the next 
Anyway, to prepare the kits for the workshop, I used part of the budget I'd been given to purchase a cricket machine. I'd been playing with the little cricket machine at the store where I was teaching and I was pretty impressed with it. By now, I was savvy enough to know that I would need to purchase more cartridges when I bought the machine. But given the impressive variety and the volume of designs just in one cartridge, I knew it would be a good purchase and I would get a lot of use out of it. And I did. So I used it to cut all the pieces I needed for the workshop, which was this cute paper flower topiary, which showcased a new range of uh, papers and embellishments and so on. And I was allowed to keep the cricket as part of my part of my bonus for doing the show. I still have it today. Unfortunately, I don't use it much now because I don't have a dedicated space where I can have it set up sort of ready to use when the mood strikes. And I know there are a lot more up-to-date versions, but I really, really love my pink 12 by 12 Cricut machine. It's, it does the job. It does the job that I want it to do. And perhaps when I get through the house and do a bit more decluttering, I'll find a space where I can set it up and use it a bit more often. So if you are entering this level and you're considering an electronic die cutting machine there are a lot and there are always more coming out I seriously I cannot keep up what I do know is that they fall into a few different categories there are electronic versions of the hand crank machines like the big shot um, the the Tim Holtz vagabond machine so instead of turning a handle you press a button and and it it feeds the plates through so that's one kind. Then there are the cartridge-based machines like my old Cricut. And then there are computer-based machines like the Silhouette. And then there is the Brother Scan and Cut, which literally scans a page full of stamped images and then cuts them out. So I have to confess, I'm not giving up my Big Shot. I'm not giving up my Cricut. I'm not investing in anything else. But if I was going to it would be the scan and cut because of the whole fussy cutting thing. It means if I needed to cut out a lot of things in bulk really fast, it would do it for me. It's a great time saver. And right now that's pretty much all I want. I don't really have the time or the inclination to design things on the computer to cut out. So this is where people's individuality really comes into play. Get the one that suits your need. Now, as I mentioned I moved on to level seven pretty quickly. Level seven was, I must colour all the things. After being introduced to Copic markers at SIA, I very quickly realised that I wanted stamps I could colour in. For me, Copic markers are kind of like painting with a marker. I love painting, but it's messy and it takes time to dry. Whereas Copic markers I can get shadow and highlight and midtones, but with a lot less mess and much faster drying times. As soon as I was introduced to them, I was completely hooked. And I was very fortunate to be introduced to Copics by an amazing Aussie colorist, as well as Copic royalty in Marianne Walker and Laurie Craig. I didn't even know it was a big deal at the time, but now I am so, I, I can't believe it. Looking back, I think that was just the best day because I love my Copics so much. I'd already been doing some watercolor coloring my stamps with my stamping up ink pads, but this just took it to a whole new level. It wasn't long before I did the certification course, so I am a Copic certified instructor and I, it didn't take much convincing to the store owner where I was working to add Copics into the shop. And I was teaching classes within months of, of actually discovering them. Copic markers are a serious obsession because there's so much to love about them. 
I love that they were refillable. The nibs were replaceable. These are designed to last my lifetime. And that really appealed to me. It was an investment in a tool that was going to really last. Plus, they blend like a dream. And I can color embellishments. You know what? I think I might do a separate Copic episode because otherwise we're going to go down a rabbit hole and I'm not going to finish talking about the level. So I'll slate that for another episode. So needless to say, I'm addicted to my Copic markers. However, there are other mediums I like to color my stamped images and figuring out how to color with one led me to experiment and color with others. I've been a folk art painter, so I like coloring things and I like making things look a little bit realistic. But there were all these paper crafting tools I had that I had no idea I could color with, like distress inks. You can watercolor with your distress inks. I also like to use my Zig Clean Color Real Brush markers, Prismacolor pencils, and I have been known to actually use my acrylic paints for some digital stamps that I've transferred onto canvases. But I always come back to my Copics and I use them most of all. Now, by the time I was presenting segments on Scrap It TV, I was firmly into level eight. Stamping is my life now. Look, stamping isn't just fun and relaxing and creative. I consider it to be an incredibly practical craft. I love making cards. I love sending cards. I love the communities around stamping and card making. And I love the sense of accomplishment that comes from taking some cardboard and some ink and some markers and turning them into a mini piece of art that can help turn someone's day around. I love making videos to help other people get the most from their stamps and learn how to use all those fun supplies that just jumped into their shopping basket and came home with them. With stamping very firmly in my life, I allowed myself to make some tool upgrades. So I had my Stampamajig, which was a great little tool, but then out came the Misty. Oh my goodness, this just took stamp positioning to a whole new level. And it's an expensive piece of kit, but given that I was now working in the stamping industry, I was making a lot of videos, making a lot of cards, making things for magazines. I had to be more efficient and the Misty did that for me. I was sick of throwing away cardstock because I'd misstamped it, which happened more frequently than I'd care to admit. And I wanted to be able to batch stamp. I wanted to be able to stamp something in the same location every single time. Now, there are quite a few different stamping platforms on the market now. So what you need to do if you're looking at this upgrade is find one that fits your needs and fits your budget. I love that these tools make it possible for people with hand mobility issues to be able to stamp where an acrylic block may have been difficult and frustrating or even impossible. So these are fantastic tools. I have a Misty, I have a Tim Holtz, both in the mini size. I love them both. I use them both. Find what works for you when it's time for you to make this upgrade. Now let's talk trimmers. I've gone through a lot of trimmers in my life. I talked about this in episode two. And right now I cycle between three different types of trimmers. I have my old Martha Stewart sliding blade trimmer. I like the sliding blade because I can put the blade down anywhere and move it along to anywhere and lift it straight up. And I also make it double as a scoring tool, which is super handy. I use my Fiskars Rotary Blade Trimmer, the Procision, 
which is fantastic for when I really need to cut a lot of stuff. It is my really solid workhorse and I love it. And I also use the Tim Holtz eight and a half inch guillotine. And that's when I need to trim smaller pieces. It's nice, it's lightweight, and I can put it on and off my desk quickly without the oomph that's required to, to bring the fiskers up because that's quite a heavy tool. I also recently upgraded my work surface to a tonic Tim Holtz glass media mat. Oh, I love it. I love it. I can ink and glue and heat and paint and cut all on the one surface takes all the punishment I've thrown at it so far it had become a bit of a pain swapping out my work surfaces my desk is actually quite small because I work in a cupboard and so you understand what I mean I'll link to a video that's on my YouTube channel it's an older one bear with me it's probably terrible but it's a tour of my paper crafting cupboard so you can see the workspace I've got and it was just getting ridiculous having different kinds of mats and work surfaces I had to swap out I had to swap out self-healing cutting mats and chopping boards and non-stick sheets and if I left the wrong thing on my desk it'd get damaged it was just a pain so I upgraded and I'm very happy with my glass medium mat so like I said, I was all in. I didn't think there were any more levels. I thought I was done. I thought I'd reached the pinnacle. And then I discovered a new level. Level nine, design team member. Ho, ho, ho. I found blog challenges to be a great way to stretch myself as I was building my skills. I could see what other people were creating. I could learn new techniques. And in my blog travels, I found a design team call out. I didn't even know that was a thing. I applied to a few with no luck, but one day this little shop in Canada took a chance on me and they accepted me onto their design team. Now, I've always enjoyed the challenge of working with limited supplies within a theme, within a color scheme. So I really took to design teamwork pretty quickly and easily. It was a fairly short term. And when I was done with that team, I was totally hooked. So I went looking for other DT calls and before long, I came across one for Kenny K. It was a digital stamp company and I ended up as a member of the Kenny K Crafty Crew. I absolutely loved being on that team. I had to step down at one point just because my kids needed some extra support during that time, which was really sad for me. I, but I if I'm on a design team, I want to bring my A game all the time and I found I wasn't able to do that, so I stepped down. However, I was very delighted uh, to be asked to rejoin the team later on when life calmed down a little bit and I stayed on that team right up until the day um, Kenny K closed down. I loved that stamp company and digital stamps open up a whole new world. I also did a couple of other design teams. I've been on a DT for Tiddly Inks and Little Miss Muppet Stamps. They're both digital stamp companies. And earlier this year, I was on the Kindred Stamps video design team. And that's a brand I stock in my store. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. They do fandom stamps and they are so cool. In my time on design teams, I met some of the most amazing people. Incredibly talented, but also just stellar human beings. I am friends with a bunch of them, even though we've never met. and I don't know if we ever will. These are just amazing people. And I'm so happy that they're in my life, albeit if they're in my Facebook life. Who knew that this would be a way to make friends? I'm just blown away with the kind of people that are in this industry. Anyway, one of the bonuses of being on a design team is you get some, you get some swag, you get some goodies, you get your things for free. And you often get pushed to try things that you might never have tried before and might not have tried unless pushed. 
It is a lot of work though to be on a DT. There are deadlines to meet and there are guidelines to follow. So you need to be really organized, able to follow instructions and flexible. You need to be able to do things quickly if needed and you have to stay on task. Now, I know a lot of people do aspire to be on a design team. It's a lot more recognized these days than it was back when I started. And I do have a few tips if that's something that you're interested in. Uh, The first one is be sure to read the design team requirements thoroughly. So when someone does a DT call out, there will be a list of all the things you need to meet. There's going to be a list. And if you don't think you can meet those deadlines, then perhaps apply next time when you have more time on your hands. The next one is don't be too disappointed if you're not accepted into a DT, especially on your first application. They get hundreds of applications and they're only trying to fill what six or seven or eight spaces and they've got to choose from hundreds of people. You're not the only person who they turn down and they hate it. Trust me, I know it's so hard for them to make those decisions and give people that I'm sorry you were unsuccessful email. But don't be too disappointed just because you didn't get in this time doesn't mean you won't get in next time. So keep trying. My next tip would be make a lot of stuff. If you post photos of your creations all the time onto Instagram, then you are building a great online gallery for stamp brands to view and get an idea of your style. So make a lot of stuff and post it to Instagram. Take great photos. Invest some time into learning how to take a great photograph of a finished card because these days being a good photographer is pretty much a a standard requirement for a design team. You need to showcase these things in great light and so lying a card down on your carpet and snapping a picture of it with your mobile phone is not up to snuff these days. So invest a little time. Go look at photos of design teams. How are they photographing them? What's the base like? What's the background like? Are they staging it? Pick things that you like and find your own way of doing doing it and practice as you post to your social media. I would also say you don't have to have a blog, but it can help. It's free to start a blog. You can use all sorts of different platforms. I used to use Blogspot back in the day. You can use WordPress.com. There's all sorts of ways you can start a free blog. So do a little Googling and have a little look on YouTube and you will find all sorts of tutorials to help you get started. And lastly, if you aspire to be on the design team of one particular stamp company, use their products often and tag them in every single photo you post on Instagram. It helps them become familiar with your name when DT application time rolls around. I'm just saying, be the teacher's pet. Seriously, use their stuff all the time, tag them in it, really showcase what you can do with their product. It's very helpful. So now that I was in the world of design teams and thinking to myself, this is the best thing ever. I thought I'd hit the pinnacle. I got the absolute crazy, wonderful offer of the job on Scrap It TV, which isn't around now. So unfortunately, that's not a level I could recommend to anybody else to aspire to. But it was while I was doing Scrap It TV and we were on season seven, I kind of accidentally fell into level 10, stamp shop owner. Seriously, this was not something I planned. I had never considered it, but I was such a hardcore stamper by now that I was starting to look at obscure brands in the USA that we just couldn't get here in Australia. I found one. I asked a 
I asked a question, I expected a no and got a yes. And before I knew it, I'd become a stockist for Sweet Stamp Shop. I mean, I had a background in selling handmade. So I figured, look, I'd just get in a little shipment and see if anyone was interested in them. Well, that was a few years ago and I'm still I'm still selling stamps today. Look, this is a really extreme level. It's not for the faint of heart and it's certainly not for everybody. But it's where I ended up and I've got to say, I am really happy here. I love the business I made for myself. I like helping people find things in Australia that they couldn't normally get without paying an arm and a leg for international shipping. It's fun. I love it. I'm not saying I recommend it for everyone, but it was my level 10. And this this is where I'll stop. Okay, so what can we learn from all of this? My journey from level 1 through level 10. Let's go back to where I started in the card making Facebook group where I see the same things come up over and over again. The thing is, people want to be an instant expert. Now, sure, some people can pick things up quickly, but for the grand majority, it takes time to build your skills. It's just not possible to have all the supplies and all the tools and know all the techniques straight away. It's just not. Everybody wants to be an instant expert, but we all need to start at level one just like I did and just like Jennifer Maguire did and just like Heidi Swap did, just like everybody does, you have to start at level one. And just like in a video game, as you travel through each level, you become more dexterous and you learn new skills, you get better at them and then you level up. It's what everybody does. And it's going to take some time. If you want to hear my thoughts on that whole journey from beginner to you know, that big vision, that awesomeness you've got in your mind, check out last week's podcast where I talk about how to bridge the gap and I'll link to that in the show notes so you can find it quickly and easily. The other thing that I see a lot is comparisonitis. Everyone who says, oh, I'm not as good as all of you. If you start comparing yourself to other people, I would gently recommend that you stop doing that. Stop it right now you're probably comparing the cards you're making to the cards that someone else is making who is way further up in their levels. If you are still on level one, don't compare your cards to someone who's on level five. That's like comparing apples to oranges. It just can't be done. There are too many variables. The only comparison you need to make is comparing how great your cards are now to how they were six months ago. That's the only comparison you need to make. You need to pat yourself on the back and go, damn, I did a good job. I'm really getting the hang of this. That is the only comparison I want you to do ever. What it boils down to is this. It is craft and it's meant to be fun. You'll figure out your favorite techniques, your preferred styles and the tools that help you get the job done as you go along and level up. Now, maybe you'll level up in a different order to me and maybe you'll level up faster or slower than those around you. Maybe you hit a level that you're happy with and that's where you stay. You do you and make sure that you are having fun in the process. Thanks so much for joining me in the craft room today. You can find links and other information about today's episode in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher. I'd really appreciate that. I do hope you have a very crafty day and I will see you next time. Bye for now.